Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 48, and it's classified as a song or psalm of Zion. Now the reason it's called a psalm of Zion is relatively simple, but it's because it highlights the significance of the city of Jerusalem or Mount Zion. Now, Jerusalem in this psalm is called the city of God, and it is placed high above any other city in all of creation for the simple reason that God has given it special significance. He actually dwells within their midst. Well, we find then as a people that celebrate this city, but they celebrate it in light of God's presence and special blessing in and through the town of Jerusalem. In other words, it's actually God himself who makes this city special to them. It is therefore God who is the object of their praise and worship and even their confidence in this city. So there are a few reasons or ways in which they extol or highlight this truth, that is the beauty and virtue of Jerusalem, but all of it is really designed to bring them to a point of praise and worship of the God who cares for them. The first way the psalmist will show this is simply that God's care for his people is that he dwells within their midst. The second way he expresses this is that his children are protected from their enemies at all times. And the third and final way in which he uh, portrays this reality of God's care for his children is that he lifts up the providence of the Lord to demonstrate that God actually sustains them and cares for them through his covenant faithfulness to the very end, that is, in all of life and death. What we find then is a rather beautiful but simple truth, one that I hope is of much encouragement to you today, and that is that God has made himself known, but specifically as one who cares for his people. He is a God who cares for his people. It's incredibly practical, so don't lose sight of that as we get into some of the weeds here today. Now, if you would, look with me at verses 1 through 3, where we see the first way God reveals his care for his children in Israel here. Notice the psalmist simply writes, Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God, in her palaces, has made himself known as a stronghold. Now, as we look at verse 1, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Our psalmist here opens with a call to praise, and the basis of it is ultimately God's greatness, his splendor, his majesty, and the basis of this praise is informed by the fact that God dwells within their midst. Now, the call to praise is not any ordinary call to praise. This isn't a people who are simply relatively excited. The Hebrew actually expresses it in a way that would give uh, give God the highest order of praise and uh, glory they could possibly give. They might even be considered foolish in the eyes of those who see them. So think of David as he's dancing in his loincloth before the Ark of the Covenant. It really is this exuberant excitement that they are to give uh, unbridled, passionate praise to their God. Now, the reason for this, again, is very simply that God has made himself known to them and he dwells within their midst. I'm going to be essentially beating that reality to death in this sermon that God is in their midst 
And the reason for that is it's incredibly significant. Now, the location in which they are to praise God, we find here, is this city of God, what he calls his holy mountain, that is Mount Zion, as we see in verse 2, and that is Jerusalem. The scope of the psalmist doesn't focus simply on the mountain, if you will. His idea or his focus includes the whole of Jerusalem as this place of prominence above the rest of the cities of the earth and even Israel itself, but again, on the basis of the fact that God dwells uniquely among them there. Psalm 78 says it this way. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to write it down to reference later, he says that it's not the tribes of Joseph or Ephraim that the Lord chose, but Judah in Mount Zion, which the Lord loves. Psalm 87 says of it in this way, it's that God loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. So Jerusalem in Psalms 87 is seen as even more special than all the cities in Israel. He goes on to say that one day pagan nations are actually going to, they're going to come, they're going to worship the Lord here, they're going to boast of the fact that they have been born there, and the reason for this is all because God dwells in this city. Now, if you look back at verse 1 with me, I want to show you how he, in some sense, brings this to significance here. He emphasizes the use of personal pronouns when he says, this is God's city. This is God's holy mountain. This is our God. In all of it, notice he's showing the intimate relationship that they have as Israel with their God, but ultimately that all of these things belong to the Lord himself. Every aspect of this psalm, then, is focused on the fact that this city is God's unique city. These people are unique even among God's unique people of Israel. The Lord is with them in particular, but he is their God. It's incredibly special. Now, the reason why then the psalmist calls them to this exuberant worship and praise is because they are in the one place out of all the earth that God dwells. That's massive. I mean, I... I to. I can't stress how significant that is because this is the Old Testament, right? This is the one place in all the earth that the Spirit of God resides and they live there. They are actually there. They are closest to the very presence of God himself. Now notice in verse 2, the psalmist just continues to exalt this city because God has chosen to dwell here. He says, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. Now, the city of God is given several descriptors here in this verse. If you would just simply look at the text with me, I want you to see what makes it so glorious here. It's not about the city in and of itself, but by the very fact that God is with them. Again, it's important to understand that the psalmist is framing Israel and particularly Jerusalem's glory in this idea that God's special presence is with them. He says, first of all, that it is beautiful in elevation, or more simply stated that it is beautiful in its lofty heights. It is the highest of all mountains. Now, geographically, we know that this is not the case. There are certainly other higher mountains. There are many taller mountains and even more majestic-looking mountains in this one. So what is he actually trying to communicate here? Well, because God is with them, because they are in the very presence of God himself, they are, out of all people on the earth, in a place that stands out among the rest. No other mountain pales in comparison. Though the beauty of other mountains may be seen, the reality is that this is the most beautiful of all mountains because the God of all beauty actually rests here. This is the highest of all mountains because on it they are the closest to their God. God. 
Now, secondly, notice he says this mountain is a mountain of joy, but specifically the mountain of joy for the whole earth. Again, the idea is that Jerusalem is unique among all the cities of the earth because God dwells with them. It's also unique among the cities of Israel. In essence, what he's communicating here is that this city, this is the crowning jewel of God's uh, kingdoms on earth, if you will. Why? Again, because God dwells in their midst. It has everything to do with the fact that God is there. There's not only significance because he chose this city out of all others, but he has actually made his presence known to them in this city. And now this is going to become all the more important as we get to verses 4 through 8, and we'll get there shortly. But for now, look back at verse 2, and I want you to see how he describes this city even further in relation to God himself. Now he gives us a third description here where he says that it is in the far north. Now, there's a bit of wordplay that's actually taking place here. And some of you are wondering, okay, what's, what's the wordplay? North is north. Well, in the Hebrew, the term north is actually zephon. It's used in various contexts to actually refer to north as in a cardinal direction. But there's also a place that they would know as called Mount Zephon. Now, Mount Zephon is a place the Israelites pass by on the way through uh, the wilderness to the promised land during the Exodus. And ironically enough, Mount Zephon, that is Mount North, if you will, Mount Zephon is the place that was said to be inhabited or dwelled uh, by the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal, as you might pronounce it. The pagan nations considered this to be the holy mountain. This is the place where they say God dwells. Their god is Baal, or Baal, but the idea the psalmist is alluding to then is that on Mount Zion, it is the true holy mountain. It is the greater Zephon, the greater north, if you will, the one place in all of creation where God actually dwells. While they might make a pilgrimage as far as these pagan nations to see Baal on Mount Zephon, the only place where they could actually experience the one true God and the presence of this God was in Jerusalem. And yet they hated the Israelites. In essence, in every single way, he's saying Mount Zion is superior. Jerusalem is superior. Why? Because the one true God is here. He's not anywhere else in all of God's green earth is what he's saying. And it is the city of the great king. It is the city of the great king, which is what he now turns to at the end of verse 2. The psalmist simply highlights God has supreme sovereignty and authority of all things. He is the great king, the sovereign one. This city belongs to the sovereign one. He's not merely the great God of Israel. He is the God of all of the earth, and this God dwells here. This is incredible. He has authority over every square inch of all creation, and this is the God, he says, dwells with us. This is a pure expression of God's sovereignty, for one, but notice it's coming from a particular place. For them, this is incredible. They, they are in Jerusalem, and he says, the one being who is over every aspect of life and death itself is Yahweh, and he's here with us. He is the great king. He is our great king. He is our sovereign one. He is the one to whom all allegiance and honor is due, and we will serve him. And as we will see even more shortly, he just goes on to say that any who oppose this sovereign God and Lord of all the earth will enemy or be his enemy and be defeated. They will actually flee away in terror. So this is not only a matter of God dwelling with them, but God protecting and preserving them in every single aspect. He is their warrior God. Yet this God who reigns as a terror to his enemy, 
He says here in verse 3 that he is a source of all strength and security for his people. Uh, Think of that. I mean, literally, just think of, if you can, get your mind around that aspect of things, where this God, who is a terror, an enemy to those who hate him, is a friend to those who love him. He is their protector. He is their guardian. He is their peace. He is their strong shelter. He is the one who is the sole source of comfort and protection from anyone else on all of creation. He is the one who loves them and cares for them. Notice what he says in verse 3. God, in her palaces, that is in Jerusalem's palaces, has made himself known as a stronghold, as a mighty fortress or a bulwark, as Luther would say. The idea is that, again, he is the warrior God. He is not simply a source of protection, but that he fights on their behalf. And so within the city itself, God has made himself known as this. He is their defendant. It's not that the city is said to be indestructible. No, he points to a much greater reality that that God himself is their place of refuge. It's not that they run to their strong towers, they place their trust in the mighty men or whomever else they may see fit, but they look at God himself as a preserver and protector of this city. And so the city then just serves as a continual reminder, if you will, to these people that God is not only with them, but that God is for them. God dwells among them and actually goes to battle for them. Think of it in this way. They literally have the Spirit of the Lord with them at all times. Now, you have that in Christ, by the way, and it's not limited to geography, but here, things work differently. They have the Spirit of God in this city with them at every waking moment. Where other kingdoms exhaust their time and money and resources and energy and everything else, into building up their defenses, you have the God of all creation with you. You have the one inexhaustible resource, the one impregnable resource. He is the only one who can stand against every single thing all at once, and he is their God. He's available to Jerusalem. God is in the midst of the city. He is their strong shelter. Therefore, no arrow can pierce, no sword can slay, no enemy can overtake them. All because God is with them. That's incredible. That's incredible. The significance of that can't be overstated. I mean, it it literally cannot be overstated. But the most important part of all of it, and this is what I, I desperately want you to understand with this, is that the glory of this city is all found in the glory of God emanating or flowing from it, meaning that their glory is seen wrapped up in the glory of God. There's this rather wonderful imagery being shown here in verse 3. Again, the city, the city itself is not what is indestructible, but the source of their protection, which is God, is. God is the one who is indestructible. And more than this, God has actually made that known to them. It's not just this high ivory tower theological reality that they have assented to. God has made it known to them. He has continually shown them from one generation to the next just how safe and secure they truly are because he is with them. They are truly safe and secure in the grasp of their God. Time and time again, the Israelites have seen that though many make war with God, many make war with God's people, it is always God who prevails. The only way in which they do not prevail, as far as the Israelites, is if God says so. Now, throughout their long and often bitter history, it was the Lord who saved them 
every single time, right? They have the recorded acts of God's salvation all throughout the scriptures. They see it in the word. These are the things they have continually sought to teach their children, but these are also things of much hope for them. And yet, it's not that they've just seen it in the word. The word here says they've actually experienced it for themselves. They have seen God deliver them and provide for them. As they look on this city, even, it's a testament to the fact that God still provides for them. They continually see it as a memoriam built in remembrance of the faithful king who rules over all and is mighty to save. A city is just a testament. It's a testament to his gracious provision and his covenant, ultimately. That's the beautiful reality of it, is the city stands as a testament to his covenant, his promises that will not go rendered in void. He promised the city to David, and what did David do? He came in and conquered. It became known as the city of David. He sought to build the temple, and the Lord said, no, it will be given to your son Solomon. And what did Solomon do? Solomon built the temple, and there the Lord resided Every aspect of it, they can see the hand of their God on it and know without a shadow of a doubt, the sovereign Lord in control of all things is with them. He is their comfort. He is their strength. Their confidence as they look on this city is not like all the other nations. They don't look on these things and see, we have many mighty warriors. We have an abundance of wealth. We have a city that is impregnable. It cannot be defeated. We cannot be defeated. No, they look at it and say, it is God who dwells with us and he cannot be defeated. He is our mighty warrior. He is our richness and wealth. Think of this in light of you and I. We're not Israelites. We don't have the the same specific geopolitical promises that all these guys would have had. And yet, is God not present with his people today? I mean, I would argue we actually have it in an even greater measure because under the old covenant, you didn't have the spirit of God working in the same exact way that we find in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, in Christ, every single one of you have the spirit of God residing in you. The church has the spirit of God within them. Simply because you have the spirit with you, you have access to the Father literally at every waking moment of the day. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit, and he seals you for the day of redemption. If you are in Christ, he seals you. You are utterly safe. Utterly safe. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can remove his grace from you. Nothing can cause you to fall away from his grace. You and I have a sure reality that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us in every single manner, and the Spirit continually brings that truth to bear in us. Have you thought of that reality recently? Just how safe you are. Just how forgiven you are. Just that the fact that God in you and I is sanctifying you and he is at work helping you to bring you before the Father one day, blameless and with great joy, and everything in this world will one day just simply go away. and All the problems that we have, all the sin, everything else, none of it will be there. And the Spirit will take you and I to that place. He is the chariot, if you will, for us to ride to get to heaven. And I don't mean that in any kind of a crass way. I'm just saying that he is our helper that will literally sustain us to the very, very end. But in the simplest of terms, it just means that God is with you. I mean, contemplate that reality. 
that the God of all of this universe is with you in the midst of the deepest and darkest hour of your life. Again, at the risk of making that the understatement of the year, the implications of this are incredibly massive. You are safe. Nothing can harm you unless the Lord decrees. Nothing can strip you from his love. God is with you even during the longest and hardest days that you have, the longest and hardest hours that you have. Everything else can fall apart, and yet he is with you and ministers to your spirit in a way that no other can. And have you not found that to be the case when things are just miserable? You're scrambling often, wondering what in the world is going to come of this, and yet the spirit is there, and the spirit brings you hope. And it's not this earthly creature comfort hope. It's a heavenly hope. It's a hope that's otherworldly, that brings you joy in the midst of that. Because sometimes, let's face it, things just don't get solved. And it's hard. Beloved, it could be hard, but the Spirit is always there. He is with you as a God of all comfort who brings you peace in the midst of affliction. He convicts us of sin He draws us to Christ and brings us to mirror his likeness all the more day by day by day so that way we are prepared even to enter glory. All of it's a sure sign of God's providence, his special care for his people, his love for his people. All of it's a sign of God actually being with us. His faithfulness is not only in the here and now, it keeps us all the way through eternity. Think of the access you have, the access you have I think of it in light of our, our kids. You know, we have our youngest, Riley, who the other night, I didn't wake up for it, of course, because like any other husband, I just slept right through it. But three o'clock in the morning rolls around, and she comes into our room. She's scared. She had a bad dream. She's a nightmare. And she just wants some comfort. And so she comes to mom, and sometimes she's come to dad if mom doesn't wake up, but What do we do but every time we say, honey, when you're scared, what do we do? We go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, what else? We remember God is good. He is our protector. He is our safety. Okay, good. What else? We have no reason to fear because God is with us. Some variation of that. Beloved, that is the kind of access you and I have before the throne of God. At any waking moment, you can go before your Father because the Spirit grants you access. And yet it's also a sure sign of God's protection from our enemies. Those are things that we have a hard time grappling with, I think, in this day and age. Maybe not so much anymore because we're watching the world spiral out of control but we literally have protection from our enemies, the greatest of which being sin, Satan, and death especially. But the natural implications of God dwelling among his people is that he is their provider. He is their protector. Notice this is something that the Israelites, they take note of, but they bank on. Verses four through eight, I want you to see this. God makes himself now known as the one who preserves his people from their enemies. In verses four through six, the psalmist writes, for lo, the kings assembled themselves They passed by together. They saw it being Jerusalem again, and then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there, anguish as a woman in childbirth. 
Notice the description that's just given of these guys here, right? I mean, they're, they're utterly terrified. These pagans have come against Israel. They've come against Jerusalem in particular. And it might be Assyria. It might be some other region. It doesn't really matter. But the, the reality is they came before the city, and what they were filled with was a sense of dread, utter dread. They were like a woman writhing and contorting in labor. And all of you ladies who have had children, you know exactly what that's like. I mean, maybe some of you had the drugs to help you out with that. But my point is simple, that none of it removes the pain of it. Even at the end of it all, you still have to heal and everything else. It's like, it's a hard process. It's cursed even, as Genesis would tell us. But here, we find these mighty, mighty warriors are given that circumstance, that scenario. And so what do they do? But they flee like little schoolgirls from this. We don't know exactly what it is that they saw, but what we do know, especially given the circumstances, is that God intervened in a very miraculous way for them. He stood up on the day that Israelites needed him most, and perhaps he opened their eyes to a legion or myriads of myriads of angels. Maybe. You know, maybe they saw them line the hills like Elisha did, and they see that at a waking moment, what's going to happen is that they're going to come in and slaughter them. Or maybe they made, or God made himself known to them and appeared to them like several places in the Old Testament where God himself actually takes upon human flesh in some way as pre-incarnate Christ, or by his spirit he shows up. It's even possible that all he did here was simply by the sheer weight of his awesome presence that he, by the spirit, cast a dread upon them. That as these unclean men and pagan men that were worshiping false gods came closer and closer to God's holy city, what they felt was the awesome weight of holiness that God has. And they, much like Isaiah, stood and said, woe is me, and they fled. That's very, very possible. Regardless of how they were seized with terror, the result is clear. They were terrified, and ultimately Jerusalem was preserved. God made himself known as a stronghold, not just to his people, but even to their enemies. Now, the Lord just simply drove them out without any help from the Israelites, without any direct intervention from their men. The Lord himself did it. But I want you to notice, he now gives another measure of that sheer awesome power in verse 7. He says, with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. Now, the people of Tarshish, if you didn't know or don't know much about them, that's okay. They were a region, um, you might remember them from the book of Jonah, that's where Jonah fled. They were a region known for just having an immense amount of wealth, and they embarked in the trade industry. They would go throughout the Mediterranean on the seas, and they had these massive, massive cargo ships that they put all of their precious cargo in, and it was things like gold and onyx and cedars and everything else that you could possibly sell They were exceedingly rich and wealthy because of it, and their ships were exceedingly strong and sturdy. That's what they were known for, in fact, was that they could weather the storms. And yet, what happens here? With the east wind, you, Yahweh, break the ships of Tarshish. The object lesson here is very, very simple. God destroying these ships is a sheer sign of his awesome strength and majesty. You know, these ships are seen as the epitome of strength and even the cunning ingenuity of man, and yet with a mere word, cast into the depths of the sea with all their precious cargo. The point is quite simple. God is not merely powerful. He is all-powerful. And yet, it is not that he is merely all-powerful. He is all-present. 
This is not simply the God of Jerusalem. This is not simply the God that dwells in the city of Zion. His authority and might reaches to the furthest corners of the earth. And no matter what strong ships you might find, you who escape and flee, the Lord will hunt you down. That's the terrifying reality for his enemies here. Nobody is safe. Think of the book of Obadiah, if you even remember it, that's okay. But he says the Edomites, right, they have these shelters built into the crags of the cliff at the very top of the top. And he says, from there, I will bring you down. O eagle Edom, no height can keep you safe. No depth can keep you safe. No ship can carry you away fast enough from the devouring lion that is God. Or think of it maybe in this way. God is a strong shelter to his people, right? In every single way, God protects and preserves his people. He is the exact opposite for those who are not his children. He is the exact opposite, the perfect opposite. Flip every bit of it on its head and you'll see that God may be the very best of friends to those who are his children, but he is the very worst of enemies to those who are not. That's essentially what he's showing us here. Now, the psalmist just continues to show this in, in an even greater reality in verse 8. Notice what he says now. He says, as we have heard, as the oral report that we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Notice first there's this twofold approach to how they understand just how, how utterly safe and secure they are. The psalmist states, we have heard, and what he's again alluding to is that, that oral tradition that they know so well, that every Israelite family was commanded to participate in, meaning mom and dad were faithful to teach them the ways of the Lord. We often think of the commands that were given to the Israelites back in Numbers and Deuteronomy and even in Exodus. We think of these commands and think all they did was teach doctrine, doctrinal truths, that they taught the law, they taught everything they must obey to be right with God. And this is, of course, true. I mean, it's undeniably true. And yet part of the instruction that they were commanded to give was to speak of the salvific acts of God. They were to speak of all the ways that God was mighty to save Right? This is why they did the Passover. Every single aspect of it was to say, look at our God. We are to be a holy people because he is holy, but look at our God who saves. Look at everything that he has done throughout all generations. Remember, children, when we were at our darkest hour, what did the Lord do? He swallowed the Pharaoh's chariots up and he guided us. He preserved us all through the wilderness and gave us manna to eat. Remember, children, what did we do? You walked around the walls of Jericho and you blew the trumpet and the walls fell. Remember, children, what did King David do? Well, he picked up a armor of Saul and it was way too big for him. And so instead he went out with a sling and stone and he killed him. Now, children, did David kill him? Did we topple the walls? Did we kill Pharaoh? No, it was Yahweh, our God, who preserved us and protected us in every single instance. The God of all creation, the one who has all might and authority in his hands and who is mighty to save. Yahweh is our deliverer. 
And with eyes full of wonder at what their Lord had done, their children were taught to anticipate great saving deeds of Yahweh. These children, they've now grown into men and women. They're men and women of great faith in their own right, but in specifically in God, they witness for themselves here and now how God protects them and how God preserves them. All, all that they heard as children, they now just simply clearly see. Those truths are now being all the more intimately tied to their hearts and minds, and they see it in this city. Notice again the possessive phrases that he uses here. He says, this city is the one that belongs to God, right? Verse 8, it is the city of the Lord of hosts. It is the city of our God. And then what's more than this? We have seen, we have heard, God will establish her being this city forever. Again, all of it just simply describes God as the one who owns it. And he owns every square inch of creation, don't get me wrong. But there is a special ownership here. Notice the description of God also portrays him as the one who simply holds all authority and might in his hands. He is the God of hosts. Now, the term for hosts is a military term. It literally means armies. He is the God of all the armies. He is the God of the heavenly armies, but he is the God of all the earthly armies as well. And every single aspect, what he's portraying here is simply that God is the one who is in control. And even those armies that are attacking you, they're his. You need not fret. They're his armies. All the armies of the earth are simply servants in the hand of Yahweh. They will accomplish what he desires. They will do what he desires. He is a sovereign one. And yet notice it also portrays that this sovereign God, again, is their God. It's this intimate relationship they have with the all-powerful, the all-sovereign one. He is the God who stands watch over the city at all times. But even more than this, again, they have him as their God. That's incredible. He's the one who is covenanted with them, and he has shown his faithfulness all throughout the generations before them, and now he's showing them once again of his faithfulness. He's saying, look, I'm still your God. I've been the God of your fathers and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers, but lo, I am your God as well. They're not merely stories for them. They're not object lessons. They're not moral tales. None of it is designed for that. They have witnessed the God of all creation stand in the gap for them all throughout their history. And it brings them to a worship and praise of their creator, the one who is faithful, the one who is true, the one who has shown himself time and time again that he is with them. Notice how even here the psalmist just simply looks well ahead. It's not that God has just been with them, that he is with them now, but that he will always be with them, that he will establish this city forever. I mean, this is an incredible aspect of God's covenant with them. Right? They're strengthened, they're encouraged by the fact that they've seen God work in all these different ways, and yet the basis of their hope lands squarely upon his promises here which means ultimately they're not looking at circumstances at the end of the day. What they're looking at is covenant. What they're looking at is the objective promise of God. And they're saying part and parcel to this promise even is how God has preserved this place. That Jerusalem has special significance. And every victory that they witness then is just a simple foretaste of final victory when everything is put under the foot of Christ and said and done with. 
they're going to look at this in light of messianic promises in one sense as well, because these are happening at the same time. You have the prophet Isaiah, you have all these different aspects happening, right? So they see even in defeat, even in defeat, they're like, look, this is not the final word. None of this is going to overrule God's final promises to us. This will not be a final defeat. Every exile they would even face, it's going to be a simple reminder for them. God will restore the fortunes of his people one day. And subsequently, he's going to put an end to all this stuff that plagues us. In every single aspect of life and death, what they are simply developing more and more as more generations come, especially in light of everything here, is that God is with them in life and death, and they will see the sure promises of God made true. (laughs) That's it in a nutshell. God is their God. They are reminded all the while of his covenant faithfulness to perpetuate not only this city, but his people, and even as we experience today, the church. Right? These are just continuing to develop all the more throughout today. So think of it like this. As generations of Israelites are coming and going, this promise only continues to develop and to deepen and to widen because they start to see it with a new angle of appreciation. What they're seeing is that more promises of this one who is to come will come. More promises come of the one who is to reign from the throne of David in the midst of God's holy city. And they look on it and say, Surely, if this one who is to come is eternal, just as the scriptures foretell, then this city will be eternal, just as the scriptures say as well. Surely, no enemy can defeat us. They're looking at all the totality of scripture and seeing that it is undoubtedly clear and certain that God will be faithful to his covenant. God will reiterate his promises through each generation and be faithful to fulfill them. They may have to wait a long time but they know without a shadow of a doubt that all these things are undeniably true. So think of it again this way, Isaiah 52 and 53, you don't have to turn there, but write it down in the margin. These chapters speak of the reality that Israel is called out of exile. God is going to redeem them. Those who are defiled by sin and unbelief, though, he says, will not enter into the gates of Jerusalem ever again. This is all in the context of Isaiah 53, which is a suffering servant passage, right? It foretells of Christ's crucifixion. But he says, one great and glorious day, Israel, in particular Jerusalem, will be restored, and not an unholy person or an unbelieving person will enter into their gates. The people will taste of redemption, but they will taste of it in full. The culmination of this redemption, he moves on in in chapter 53 to talk about the idea that it's not merely they will be pulled out of exile and slavery, but they will be liberated in the greatest and deepest sense where they're forgiven for their sins. That one comes and suffers and dies upon the cross in order to forgive them. That it's paid in full and that this one who would suffer would do so in complete innocence. Surely, as the passage says, they would be bought back without money for they were sold without anything. And yet, it would not be without great cost. The sacrifice and all sacrifices we know to pay the guilt of sin through blood and suffering like none other before and since is simply something we cannot even fathom. I mean, we simply cannot even fathom it. But it is because of such suffering that Isaiah says in 52 and 53 and even in 54 that Christ will be exalted. All the nations will come to flock to him. God's people will be exalted 
this city of Jerusalem, Zion, in 54, he even says, will be exalted. It is from this place, he says, that the fortunes of Jerusalem will come to be restored to them under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. These are the promises that, though the psalmist may not see in full, that he, he, undoubtedly their children are coming to learn of all the more as their parents are being faithful to just teach them. You know, you have the minor prophets that say in other ways. Micah 4, again, write it down if you want, but he speaks of the restoration in this way. There's unbridled peace and security and worship of God that characterize literally every aspect of creation, every corner of the earth. Not one bit of it is untouched. Obadiah talks of it in this way. He says that Mount Zion will one day be made holy yet again. And he says from this point is when judgment will take place, meaning that all the nations will be judged, People will be carted off to eternal life or eternal death. But he says the remnant of Israel will be restored and the kingdom of the, or the kingdoms of the earth will actually become their inheritance. Isaiah 54 describes it in this way, which if you're familiar with Revelation 21, it's eerily similar. New Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21. In Isaiah 54, he just calls it Zion. He says the foundations, the walls, and even the gates of the city are inlaid with all types of precious stones of rubies and jaspers and diamonds and gold. And that's exactly, pretty much identical to what Revelation 21 says. But he also says in Isaiah 54 that those who dwell in this holy city will burst forth in much praise because of the mighty saving work of Yahweh. Now, there's numerous other instances all throughout Scripture that show this same reality, but the point I'm just trying to make here is that when God says this city will be established forever, he he means it. When the psalmist says that he means it, it's not this temporary throwaway line where they're just exalting in this city as if it's special in and of itself. No, they're looking in light of God's covenant promises and saying that God is going to be faithful. God will always be faithful. In spite of their sin, in spite of their waywardness, in spite of their harlotry and idolatry, in spite of enemies that seek to essentially just exterminate them, God will remain faithful. God's promises remain intact. Right? It's much the same for us as we look at things in the New Testament. Is there anything that can undo the promises of God? Can we, O mortal men, thwart the will of the Almighty? It all rests squarely on his ability to fulfill his promises. And here's where I find it perhaps the most applicable to us. Because all of this is set within the backdrop of the end times, or the end of all days, where God rules and reigns on earth as he has promised, and there's ultimate victory over all sin, all of God's enemies. And we know, just as Israel did, that God's preserving hand will carry us to that fateful day and that all of creation itself will be redeemed. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more unhappiness. I mean, think of that. I'm just general unhappiness. You will have the fullness of joy. The promises that are way back here in the Old Testament carry so much more significance than many of us realize. And the point I'm driving towards is that it's bigger than just Israel. It's bigger than just the church. It has to do with the faithfulness of God himself. Picture it much like a series of dominoes, right? You have a stack of dominoes where you have a small one all the way to this really large one at the very end of it. And all along the way, there's these various points that have to be hit. There's a domino struck at one point, and it just carries successively through from one to the next, all the way through to the very end of time itself. All those dominoes must fall. 
the biggest and greatest one is that end of all days in which Christ returns and rules in perfect justice and righteousness. And so in the midst of that, what does it say if we believe that God will somehow just yank one of those dominoes out? If all those dominoes are promises, those promises must be fulfilled. It showcases his consistency, his faithfulness. It showcases his covenant love. But for us, it's intrinsically practical because no, without a, certain, or without a shadow of a doubt, again, that if God is consistent, it means that he's utterly consistent. He's consistent with you. You can't somehow outsin his grace. And what I mean by that is that you're not presumptuous, but that you can't sin too grievously for the blood of Christ to be of no effect. You can have security knowing that he will ultimately bring you to the very end, to the finish line, just as he has promised. You can have certainty knowing he is bringing about the end of this age, that one day soon Christ will return, and that every single thing that he has promised will indeed come. You can have hope in a world that often just stinks. You can have hope. The rat race of life at work and everything else, you can have hope. Christ will reign on the throne. He will bring his people to glory. He will bring them to rule with him. I want you to see how the rest of this fleshes things out. I have to move very rapidly at this point. But verses 9 through 14, I want you to see that he takes this idea of God's covenant faithfulness and he just amps it up all the more. But he puts it in prospect of worship. Right? Everything culminates in worship. The natural response of seeing God's saving mercies and his covenant faithfulness and even just this idea of Christ's eternal rule and reign is worship. So notice in verses 9, or starting at verse 9, he says, We have thought of your hesed, that is your loving kindness, your covenant faithfulness, O God, in the midst of your temple. Right? The people have come into the temple of God where his spirit dwells, and they've contemplated just how faithful he is to the covenant. Right? They can't help it. They're in his very presence. And so all they can think about is just how faithful God is. And yet, notice of this, they want to give him the highest magnitude of praise that they can possibly give him. This is what they refer to in verse 11, or 10, I'm sorry. He says, as is your name, meaning just as it is equal to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Right? The idea is that God's very name reaches every corner of the earth. We have to somehow come up with the sheer magnitude of praise deserving of that glory. We have to because God deserves it. He is altogether glorious. We want to give him the most amount of glory we can possibly give him, and it is because he is mighty to save. Right? He is faithful to his covenant. Because God has been so good and faithful, they just say we want to bring him a massive amount of glory. And yet they also praise him, if you notice here, for what's found in his right hand, which is righteousness. Now, that's an expression, and the expression is simply designed to show you that in his right hand is power, majesty, authority, might. That's what it's alluding to here. He is not only the one who is over all the earth, but he has the fullness of power itself in his grasp. He has shown up time and again to protect and preserve these people, and yet the manner in which he executes his power and might is purely righteous. It is purely consistent with the word of God in every single aspect. That's how we would probably phrase it. God is consistent from start to finish. Every way he says he will act in his word, he will act. Right? This is a stark difference from any of the pagan gods. The people that are in pagan countries, they have no clue if their gods would hear them. 
hear their prayers, if he would act righteously or judge judiciously. They have no clue if they could placate them enough for forgiveness. None of this stuff. Every waking moment, they are in sheer panic and confusion, wondering if I've angered the gods. Not so with Yahweh. Not so with God. The Israelites know exactly how to please him. They know exactly what it means to be in his good graces, if you will. They, they know the law. They know what it takes to obey God. But they also know that they can come and sacrifice and they can be actually forgiven. Now, it's, it's a shadow of what's to come in Christ. And we find this, obviously. But they know without a shadow of a doubt that they can look to God in faith and see that God forgives. God is mighty to save. In every single way, they're not left in the dark. They don't have to worry if God's going to be schizophrenic or change his mind from one day to the next. Every day they can wake up with the certainty of knowing that God will be the same yesterday, today, and forever, just as they can look in the sky and see the sun each morning. Even more so than that. Again, all of it they they can see rests on his covenant faithfulness. It's so woven into the very being and nature of God himself that for God to not be faithful, beloved, he would not be God. He would literally have to not be God for him to not be faithful. He is unchanging, which means in every single aspect, you and I even know what God requires of us. He's not going to somehow come up with a greater and more deeper list of sins. He's revealed that to us. We know what he doesn't like. He's not going to come up with a different way of salvation for us. We know that we must confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's revealed that to us. We don't have to guess on any of it. He's not going to be making a new way of salvation. He's not going to be bringing further revelation to the table at this point because he has given us all that we need for life and godliness on this side of heaven. In every single aspect, we can know each and every day that we don't have to embark in some mystical practice of hearing our prayers and thinking, God's going to speak to me in this way that's contrary to his word. No, we have a sure guide in his word. God has shown himself to be faithful and true and good in every single way, and especially in saving sinners. Right? That's what is in reference in this whole psalm. Everything is particularly true in light of how God saves. That's the reference point. They look on this city, they see that God has saved it, Part of that is a recognition of their own generation, and yet part of it is undeniably a recognition that God will save undoubtedly the future generations of Israelites. He will save their children and their children's children. Again, he's not looking on it merely for them as if this is going to be contained to just one group of people, but that God's saving mercies will continue to reflect throughout all of time. He even includes the Gentiles right? I mean, we know this because we are Gentiles. Unless you're Jewish here, you're Gentile. But all throughout the Old Testament, there's glimmers of this reality as well. There's this expansion. And all it does is spur them on to further worship of the king. Notice what he says here now in verses 11 through 13. They start to praise God even more. He says, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And there's two commands here. Right? They carry the full weight of commands. He says they are to be glad and to rejoice. There's these two different people, those in Mount Zion and those who are daughters of Judah. It's talking about all of Jerusalem and even the suburbs that go around it. It says rejoice. Rejoice for God's saving work. Rejoice for his mighty acts to save. Rejoice that he is in your midst. The call for them 
again, is all set in light of God's protection, his uh, preservation, his covenant faithfulness, the fact that he dwells among them. What they're to do then is see God's faithfulness in every single aspect and give him thanks. That's it. I mean, it's resoundingly simple when you boil down to that, isn't it? Right? They see that God is faithful in every single way and he will only ever continue to be faithful and therefore let us all be glad and rejoice. And then notice what he says in verses 12 through 13. He highlights this reality again, but to future generations. Walk about Zion. Let's go around the city. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces. Why? That you may tell it to future generations or to the next generation. From generation to generation to generation, tell of God's mighty works to save. They are to look on this city and consider how God has established her, how he's protected her, how he's promised to sustain her all throughout time. And he says, tell the next generation. Don't let them lose sight of what's true. Right? You know that one is going to come on the throne of David to rule forevermore. Tell them. You know that God protects and preserves and saves his people. Tell them. Every waking moment, tell your children, he says. It's didactic. It's got an emphasis on teaching. The purpose is simply that they're not to just appreciate God's saving graces to them. They're to prepare the next generation for what comes. They're to look on their children and instill in them faithfulness and, and a love for God and to expect big things of God, namely that he's going to save them. Not this charismatic sense of things, but, and I don't mean that as an insult, but literally that just that God saves, that God is faithful. It's so much more simple than that. He says, teach them to anticipate God will work in each generation. Teach them the ways of the Lord so they don't get turned in rebellion and they inevitably go to exile and lose the land. Teach them God's ways so they will be preserved by the covenant. Teach them what it means to be a child of God. Teach them what it means to see God as Savior. Right? They have a rich, rich heritage of this in their families. Every aspect is brought under this to be able to show children what it means to be children of God. To see God's goodness, his righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, all of who God is. And this is our duty as parents as well, if you are a parent here today. The reason why God entrusted us with kids is so we can teach them of all his ways. The reason why God has given us good gifts is so we can look at them and say, look at how good our God is. Even in the midst of trials, the reason why God gives us trials is so we can look at our children and say, look at how good God still is. Look at how mighty to save he is. He will never leave us nor forsake us. God is our God. God protects us. Though we may die, he will usher us into the very next life where we are safe and secure for all time itself. God will undoubtedly put all of his enemies underfoot one day. See him as Savior, son. Trust in him, daughter. 18 years, that's it. 18 years. And if we're honest, we get an even shorter window than that because we lose influence very quickly. Instruct them in ways you wish you were instructed. 
Disciple them as you wish you were discipled. Be brought to see the truth as you wish that one person had done with you. And all you older Christians here too, you may not have kids, but help. Just help. We need it. By God, we need it. Look at this earth. People are taking our kids. Go and tell them every single day he is mighty to save. He is good. He is faithful. But most of all, tell them this truth we now see in the final verse of the psalm today. Verse 14. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Again, the city is just simply representative of all that God has done. So when he says, in looking at the city, this is our God, he's not saying the city is divine. What he's saying is that God is with us here. God is among us. God protects us. He preserves us. He loves us. He is faithful. This city showcases God in all his glory. Ultimately, the city is just a beacon that immediately casts its focus on God himself. The joy they have in the city is rooted in God. The security and comfort they experience in the city is rooted in God. It is God who is theirs forever and ever and ever. It is God who guides them until death. Just contemplate how significant this psalm is in one sense. What it leads us to see is ultimately that in every aspect of their existence, what the Israelites did here is they're looking upon this great and glorious city as they recognize it as the sheer gift and grace of God. That's it, in a nutshell. God is with us. How great is that, Israel? That's what they're saying. God is with us. They start by giving God the glory for that. They end by giving God the glory for that. And every way in between, they give God the glory for that. God is with us. He dwells among us. He protects us. He preserves us until the very end. God is with us. He is in the city of God, and he will preserve the city of God because he is our God. Forever and ever, he will guide us unto death. From start to finish, all of life and death, they say, are in his hands. And yet all of goodness and righteousness and faithfulness and everything else is in his hands too. Ultimately, they look at it and they say, we're headed towards the temple, if you will. That's where they're going to worship. That's where the spirit of God is. That's where they're going to worship. The priest would lead them not only in sacrifices. He would lead them not only in song. I mean, that's what we have the Psalms for. He would lead them not only in teaching the very word of God to them and instructing them on, on the rich truths of who God is and what he has done, but he is pointing them every which way to God himself. As they look upon the city, they say, this is the city of God, and we see God himself. And we see what's more than this is that God actually cares for us. That should blow your mind. God actually cares for his people. He is their imminent abiding God who protects and preserves and guides them in every single aspect. In all of it, all they're driven to seeing is that God's unfailing love is just that, unfailing. Consider the richness of your God. Well, as we look to then think of how all this applies to us today, because we're not Israelites, we're not in the temple, we've got many, many greater things. It is perhaps 
no more clearly presented to us than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me just put it this way. If you are in Christ, you have certain undeniable privileges that nobody else in all of creation has unless they are in Christ. Because of Jesus, we have the very spirit of God that dwells within us. We are not limited to a particular geographical location to experience the presence and protection of our God or his blessing. He is with us at all times, in all places, and will remain with us forever. He is our comforter. He is our keeper. He is with us in the good and even in the bad. Every step along the way, he is our God. We of all people get to say, no matter what, our God is with us. Because of Jesus, we are far safer than we can possibly even imagine. Unless God decrees it, no harm can befall you. But even if harm does befall you, nothing can strip you from his grasp. We are not promised everything will be pleasant in life. We are not promised that sin won't have consequences, even just life-altering, ruining consequences. We are not promised that our great adversary, Satan, will not afflict us or that his minions won't afflict us. We're not even promised we won't face death. In fact, we're promised that we will. What we are promised, though, is that none of these things will have victory in the end. Come one great and glorious day, there will be decisive victory and all of God's enemies will be placed underfoot. All of them and especially sin, Satan, and death. Because of Jesus, we are sustained by his love through every bit of life. Every single bit of life. His faithfulness knows no bounds, and in no uncertain terms shall you find that anything can separate you from his faithful covenant love. His covenant love is the very thing that will transform you more and more into the image of Christ, and he might do through incredible hardships, but he will nonetheless do it because he loves you. He will ensure that you will cross the finish line because he is faithful. He's given us standards in the word, but he guides us all the while through the might and power of his hand, and he prepares us for the glories to come. And that is perhaps what I turn to you now at the very end, is that you must look at all of this in light of the glories to come. One great day, Christ will return. That's an undeniable reality. All of the sin we know so well, all of the heartache, all of the pain, even all of the good things that are still twisted and broken because of sin, will one day be enraptured in the perfect bliss of their creator as all of creation is freed from its groaning under the weight and destruction of sin. Take stock in this. Examine God's faithfulness now. Examine his faithfulness in your life in the life of the church, and especially even in the midst of hardship. And then tell everyone you can of God's saving mercies. Tell him that he is our God and we are his people forever and ever, and that he shall guide us in every aspect. He will care for us even throughout all of eternity in ways that are far too numerous to count and far too wonderful to comprehend. And all of us will come together in pure joy and sing the praises of our King forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you are so incredibly merciful to us. There's not a bit of your grace that we deserve.
There's not a bit of your love that we deserve. We are sinners, and yet you look upon us in Christ and count us as blameless if we profess and hope in him and him alone. That is utterly confusing to us at times simply because we are creatures who go after sin much. But I pray, Father, that we would take much stock in the reality that you have laid out for us today, that you are among us as your people, that you protect us, you will put all of your enemies underfoot, and that you will guide us all the way through, even to eternity. You are faithful to your covenant. You are utterly faithful. And may we never lose sight of that, even though everything else around us may fail. Though we may have the fullness of misery on this earth, we know that we will have the fullness of joy everlasting in your presence forevermore. And so I pray that we would look with eyes to see that reality, that we would look ahead and tell people, warn them of the wrath that is to come, but tell them, of what bliss awaits for those who are in Christ. May we celebrate all the things that you have done, and may we look, even in the midst of much pain and hardship and just long, long days, that you have not abandoned your people, that we would see you are truly with us in all times and places, and that you will carry us swiftly home. We pray these things and give you praise for your matchless glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.